Aren't you thankful that we get to stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word? Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. A few weeks ago, Brother Charlie began a study through Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled Life Together. And as we move through this series, as we study this letter, you and I, as, as the banner says behind me, we are going to learn how we are to conduct ourselves in the church of the living God. The church was established by God, and God has given instruction for the church and commands for the church and how the church is to function, how we are to live together as believers. Paul began this letter by giving Timothy a charge to confront false teaching in the church. And the bulk of chapter 1 deals with this issue of addressing false teaching in the church. As we consider our text for today in verses 18 through 20, we see that Paul refers back to his initial thought at the beginning of this letter. He encourages Timothy and he instructs Timothy to confront false teaching and false teachers in the church. He gives him encouragement and instruction to fight this good fight, encouraging him that he can do it and giving him instruction to do so. And as we consider this text this morning, as we, as we think about this life together, as we think about what the scripture says, let us be mindful of what this series is about. Let us be mindful of the fact that we, as a body of believers, are to live in community with one another. We are to live according to the standard of God's word. And how God says we are to function, that's what we are to do. And so let us be mindful of that. Let us, let us come before God's, the preaching of God's word each Sunday as you come into this building, ready to hear and ready to be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you read and study scripture. So read with me, if you will, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Pray with me. Fathers, we look at your word this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear your word. Give us eyes to see it. Give us minds to comprehend and to understand what your word says. And give us hearts that are ready to hear your word and receive it and respond in faithful obedience to you. God, we love you. And I pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. As we consider this text, there, there are two things that I want to draw from this text about the good fight that Paul charged Timothy to take, to engage in. And the first thing is the responsibility to confront, to fight against false doctrine. The responsibility to fight against false doctrine. If you look at verse 18, verse 18 says, This charge I entrust to you. This charge. This charge refers back to the, Paul's initial thought in the letter in verse 3. This charge, this charge to confront, to fight against, to stand up against false doctrine in the church that was being taught. Timothy, as the new young pastor of First Baptist Church of Ephesus, had the responsibility to make sure that sound doctrine was being taught in the church. And he also had the responsibility to ensure that he was fighting against all things that were false. And that's the primary responsibility as a pastor. A, pastor, a pastor's primary responsibility is to ensure that sound, healthy, biblical teaching is being taught 
in the church. And he is also responsible to make sure that false doctrine is being rejected, that the church, that God's people are being protected from all false doctrine. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that sound doctrine be in the church and that false doctrine be rejected? When I was at Blue Mountain College several years ago, I had a professor that some of you may have, Dr. Douglas Bain, and he said many things, many which were above my head that I didn't catch on to, but one statement he said has stuck with me until this day. He said, distorted images lead to distorted transactions. Distorted images lead to distorted transactions. What does that have to do with this? Well, let me put it this way. A faulty doctrine, a distorted doctrine, leads to a faulty, a distorted way of living. If we don't have a correct understanding of who God is, the way we live our lives will be a reflection of that. If we view God, if we see, if we see God as he exists to serve us, then the way we live our lives, we're going to live our lives expecting God to meet every one of our needs according to our will in our time. If we have a faulty understanding of the doctrine of sin, if we don't think sin's that bad, then we're not going to understand the great need for a Savior. Isn't that what salvation is? You must understand your need for a Savior. You must come to face-to-face with your sin, and then you recognize, God, I need you. I need you to save me. Distorted, trans- distorted images lead to distorted transactions. Sound doctrine must be taught in the church so that we live according to how God has commanded us and instructed us to live. We must make sure that sound doctrine is being taught in the church and that false doctrine, false teaching, false teachers are being rejected. Fighting against false doctrine, this was the responsibility that Timothy had as a young pastor, and this came along with his call to ministry. Look with me in verse 18. Paul said, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. What does that mean? What does that mean? Paul was referring to an event in Timothy's life. If you look over in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, and if you look in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul was referring back to Timothy's call to ministry. He was reminding him of his call to ministry. Timothy, as a pastor, as your call to ministry, as God has called you to the ministry, you have a responsibility to fight against false doctrine. It is your responsibility And he reminded him of his calling. He reminded him of the laying on of hands as as brothers in the church surrounded him and laid their hands on him and, and recognized the call of God on his life for the gospel ministry. It was Timothy's responsibility as a young pastor to teach sound doctrine and to fight against false doctrine in the church. And Paul reminded him of this because failure to confront false doctrine Failure to confront false teaching and false teachers in the church was failure to be a good pastor. If Timothy refused, it, it's too hard. I can't, I can't do it. If he refused, then he was failing to be a good and faithful pastor. How many of you are parents? We have a lot of parents in this room. You wouldn't dare let a snake near your child. Those of you with small children, you dare you, you wouldn't throw a snake in with the rest of your child's toys. If you did, Child Protective Services would bust down your door and take your children away from you. Why do we think it's okay to allow false teaching in the church of God? A shepherd. Think about all the Old Testament. We see about shepherds. Shepherds, what happens when wolves come around? They let them hang out with the flock? No. 
They fight against them. Why? To protect the flock. It is the responsibility of a pastor to ensure that sound doctrine is being taught, but also to fight against false teaching, false doctrines that lead us away from God, that lead us into sin. Paul said that by this, Timothy could wage the good warfare. He could engage in this battle and fight against false doctrine. He reminded him of his calling, reminded him of his calling. He said, by this, you can do it. God has anointed you. God has given you this responsibility, and he's equipped you with the necessary means for this task. He encouraged Timothy and assured him of his calling. We're always told, I was, at least I was, I was told that you don't need to you know, die on every hill. Don't, don't, don't engage in every fight. You know, choose your battles. Pick wisely. Standing up against false doctrine is a fight that we all need to engage in. And it's a fight that we need to engage for our pastor, for our Sunday school teachers. Pray that they would engage in this fight against false teaching. It is a fight for this. It's not merely a fight for flesh and blood. It's a fight for the soul. Do you understand that Satan hates you and wants to destroy you and tear you away from God? Understand this and fight against false doctrine. This is a weighty responsibility for a pastor. It's not something that we can carry lightly. It's not something that people carry lightly. It is a weighty responsibility for a pastor. Yet Paul says in verse 19, by holding faith and a good conscience, that Timothy could do this. Timothy would be able to confront false teaching and false teachers. When when confronting false doctrine, we rely on faith alone in Christ. We hold to our faith. Hold to our faith in Christ. And we keep his commands We walk with a good conscience because we are walking in faithful obedience to him, keeping his commands, holding fast to our faith, trusting in Jesus alone. We stay faithful to Christ. We cling to him. We walk closely with him. The closer we are to God, the more holy we will become. The closer we are to God, the stronger our faith will be. The closer we are to God, the more sound our doctrine will be. Because we're walking with him, we're studying his word, we're keeping his commands. It isn't until we move away from God. When we move away from God, our faith grows weary. When we move away from God, from following him in faithful obedience, that's when we find ourselves in trouble. When we move away from God, when we refuse to spend time in his word, when when we refuse to have sound doctrine, that's when false teaching will creep in. Brother Charlie said a few weeks ago, weak teaching is a first cousin to false teaching. Weak teaching is a first cousin to false teaching. If we are not sound in our doctrine, if we are not sound and healthy in God's word, we as a church can move away from what God has commanded us. We see this all across America. We must be sound in our doctrine. We must be sound. When when sound doctrine is ignored, when it's pushed to the side when we ignore the scriptures and we begin to dabble in weak teaching, you can be sure that false teaching is just around the corner waiting to enter. We must not be satisfied with weak teaching. We must not be satisfied even with false teaching. We must search the scriptures to know what God has said, to study them, to love them, to obey them. We must have sound doctrine and we must reject false doctrine. Paul said in verse 19 that by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. 
by rejecting this, by rejecting holding on to the faith, by rejecting a good conscience, by not remaining faithful to Christ, by not keeping his commands, by not following after him, some have made shipwreck of their faith and brought extreme disaster, brought extreme ruin. That's what shipwreck is, to bring extreme disaster and ruin to your faith. In Judges 17, Judges chapter 17, Samson had just died. And we see in the Bible that there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, that there was, it says that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This marks spiritual ignorance in the land. This marks spiritual ignorance. Everyone, they, but the scariest thing about this is that people continued on about their daily lives, doing things that they thought were right, thinking they were worshiping God, having no clue that they were walking in disobedience to God. We must hold fast to sound doctrine so that we do not find ourselves in a state of spiritual ignorance, not understanding that we have walked away from disobedience to God. We must hold fast to the scriptures to what God has said for us to do in his word, how we are to function as a church, what we are to do, what our mission is, what our goal is as a church, as individuals. If we fail to do this, when we are left to ourselves, our natural desire is to turn away from God. Ephesians 2 says that. We all, by nature, are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Isaiah 53, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But thank the Lord for the rest of this verse. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we are left to our own, we stray away from God. We turn away from God. We see that time and time again in Scripture. We must not think we are any better than the people we read about in the Bible. We must understand left to ourselves, we will turn away from God, away from sound doctrine, and pursue our own desires. Think about this for a second. If sound doctrine wasn't important, if there was no need for sound doctrine in the church, then why did Jesus have a teaching ministry? Why did he go around teaching the things of God? Why did he go around teaching people what sin is and to repent of their sin? Why? If sound doctrine doesn't matter in the church, who cares what you teach in Sunday school? Who cares what we preach? If sound doctrine is important, what does it matter what you do? But the fact is, for the sake of the health of the church, we must preach sound doctrine. We must fill our lives with the things of God, with sound doctrine, and not be satisfied with weak doctrine. We must strive for this. We must fight against all false doctrine. Just think about it again. Jesus, he wouldn't have, con he wouldn't have confronted the Pharisees and called them out. Paul wouldn't have called these two guys out in this letter if there wasn't a need for sound doctrine in the church. But we must understand, we must stand up and fight against false doctrine. Pastors, church leaders, Sunday school teachers have the responsibility to make sure that sound doctrine is being taught and that God's people are being protected from false teaching. I'll take this a step further. Parents, you as parents, dads, men, husbands, dads, you have the responsibility to make sure sound doctrine is being taught in your home. And you have the responsibility to protect your family 
from false doctrine. Lord willing, in six months, I'm going to have a son. And I will be responsible for making sure that my son is, sound, is being taught sound doctrine and is being protected from false doctrine. I'm responsible to make sure my wife is taught sound doctrine. I'm responsible for making sure that she is protected. Yes, we each give an account to God. We all are responsible for our own decisions. But men, dads, you are responsible for your home. Protect your home from false teaching. How do we do that? Ephesians 6 tells us, by the sword of the Spirit. The sword is the only offensive weapon. The Word of God. You equip your family with the Word of God. You teach them the Scriptures. And your family will be able to stand against false teachings. How do we as a church fight against false doctrine? By knowing true doctrine. By knowing God's word. By knowing what he has said. In this good fight, there is the responsibility to ensure that sound doctrine is being taught and to ensure that we are fighting against false doctrine. And there is also the responsibility to exercise church discipline. There is also the responsibility to exercise church discipline. What is church discipline? Church discipline is is a topic that many, many churches are terribly unfamiliar with. It's a topic that we don't see much practiced. Yet we encounter it here in 1 Timothy. We see it again in 1 Corinthians 5. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 18. So we must understand what this is. Here in 1 Timothy, Paul called out two men. You see this in verse 20. In verse 20. Beginning in verse 19, by this some have rejected, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We see these two men that Paul called out. These men were most likely leaders in the church. They most likely had a lot of influence. They were probably false teachers. We see this because Paul is talking about them in the context of addressing false doctrine. Paul said these men had shipwrecked their faith. They had ruined their faith. They had made, brought about destruction upon their faith. And then he said something strange. Did you see it? Did you see it in verse 20? Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. What does that mean? What does that mean? They were removed from the church. They were excommunicated from the fellowship of God. They were placed outside of the church. But wait, doesn't, doesn't that sound a little contradictory? Aren't we about bringing people in the church? Aren't we about bringing people in the church? We want people to come to church. We talk about this all the time. Doesn't, doesn't this seem a little contradictory to what we're all about? Hymenaeus and Alexander had shipwrecked their faith by rejecting sound doctrine, by refusing to hold the faith, and by not walking in faithful obedience to God's commands. And they had no repentance. There was no repentance. How do I know that there was no repentance? Matthew 18, Jesus lays this out. Matthew 18, Jesus lays this out. If you see a brother in sin, you go to confront him. You confront him in his sin. In love, address him. Brother, you're in sin. If he, if he returns, if he repents, you've gained your brother. There's nothing more to do. If he refuses, you bring someone else with you. More wiser, more wise, more godly than you are. And you confront this brother in his sin. Please, please repent of your sin. And if he still refuses, you bring him before the church. 
and with tears in your eyes, the church will cry out, please repent of your sin. If there is no repentance, they are to be treated as a Gentile and a pagan. These men have been placed outside of the church. There was no repentance. They were handed over to Satan, the ruler of this present world. Seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? But don't miss this. Don't miss this. Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn, that they may be taught, that they may be disciplined, that they may be educated, not to blaspheme. The nature of church discipline is not punitive. It's redemptive. People aren't removed. They weren't removed from the church just to have a punishment. The hope of this was that they would see their sin, that they would see their need for repentance, and that they would repent and turn back to Christ. That's the nature of church discipline. It's to be redemptive, not punitive. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, addressing an issue of sexual immorality in the church, and he tells the church that they are to remove this brother from the church, that they are to hand him over to Satan. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We must understand the nature of church discipline is redemptive and restorative. And the goal is repentance of sin. Why? Why must this be exercised? For the sake of the health of the church. For the sake, for the holiness of the bride of Christ. For the health of of the church. Luke 15, a chapter we're all very familiar with, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. In Luke 15, 7, the Bible says that there will, in heaven there will be more rejoicing over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In the context of this verse, we see the parable of the lost sheep, the sheep who was in the fold and who had wandered astray. But when he was found, there was great rejoicing. This isn't talking about those outside of the fold. There is rejoicing. But in this context, we see those who are in the fold, who have gone outside of the fold, and that are found. The context here, those who are in the church, brothers and sisters that are in the church, who are living in unrepentant sin, who have moved away from God, who have wandered away from God. We pray for their repentance so they will come back to God. Just imagine if there was a brother or a sister in this church who was living in unrepentant sin and they were removed from this fellowship. They recognized their sin. They cried out to Jesus, Lord, forgive me. I need you. I need your forgiveness. And then we see that brother or sister walk through this door. What rejoicing that would be. It's redemptive in nature, not punitive. Hymenaeus and Alexander, we see in the text, these men were removed from the fellowship of God. They were handed over to Satan so that they would learn, so that they would be disciplined, so that they would be trained not to blaspheme, not to slander the things of God, not to take lightly the holy and sacred things of God. You and I must realize that church discipline is necessary for the sake of the health of the church. We all have discipline. My parents disciplined me growing up. It wasn't just to punish me. Every time I was disciplined as a child, my father told me why. I remember one, one day when I was a 
when I was a little boy, we were, I think we were in the gym. And I was acting up in church. I was talking. I was disrupting. We get home, and my father said, before you come in, go out and grab a switch, and then come in. I went in. Wore me out. But then he sat down and explained to me why. If we don't understand our, how great sin is, how great of an offense it is to God, we're not going to see a need to punish those. But it's not just punishment for punishment's sake. It's to bring about restoration so that people will be restored back to God. If sin in the church is not confronted, if it's ignored, if we just look over it, the church will not grow. It can't. If we refuse to deal with sin in the body, in the body of Christ, we make a mockery of God as we allow his bride to whore around with sin. We must understand the seriousness of sin. And how if you and I continue in sin, if we live in sin, we're misrepresenting Christ. We're saying it's okay that the bride of Christ is not holy. That's what we do when we don't confront sin in our own lives and in the body of Christ. It's for the sake of the health of the church. If you and I know of brothers and sisters who live in unrepentant sin and we don't confront them, we don't confront them in their sin and earnestly plea with them to repent of their sin. We're ignoring the command of God. We're showing our brother we don't care about them. We don't love them. We don't care about their holiness. In love, we go to our brothers and our sisters who are in sin. Why? Because we want them to be holy unto God. We want them to know the love of God. To walk in fellowship with God. Sin creates a barrier between us and God. We cannot have perfect fellowship with God if we are not walking in obedience to Him, if we are living in sin. 1 John says that if we say that we are walking in the light, yet darkness remains, that, that the love of God is not in us. We cannot have fellowship with God if we allow sin to remain in our life unrepentant of it, having no remorse for it. Discipline is for the health of the church. Have you forgotten that the church is the bride of Christ? Have you forgotten that the church is to be holy unto God? Have you forgotten that the church is to look nothing like the world? Do you know why it's so hard for many Christians to share their faith and to share the gospel? I've encountered lots of people. I've had this in my life. It's really hard for me to share my faith with others. Do you know why? It's because so many Christians' lives look just like the world that lost people see no difference and they have nothing to ask. Does that describe you and me? We are to be set apart for God. We are to be holy unto God. We are to look nothing like the world. Do you not know that God disciplines those who are disobedient? Do we overlook that part of Scripture? Yes, God is a God of love. He is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy and compassion and kindness. We celebrate these things. We, we are thankful for these but God is also a holy and a just God, and he must punish sin. Read the Old Testament. You will see time and time again 
how God dis, how he punished Israel. He disciplined Israel for their disobedience. If you continue reading the rest of Judges, I mentioned Judges 17 earlier. If you continue reading the rest of Judges, you see that because they have walked away from God, because they were doing what was right in their own eyes, it led to civil war. And at the beginning of the book of Ruth, you see, you see that there was a famine in the land. And this, and throughout the Old Testament, you see the famine was God's disfavor upon his people. We think too often God accepts our worship just because we come here on Sunday morning. We think God looks on us and smiles because we picked up our Bible this morning and read and closed it and forgot everything we read. We must remember we are to faithfully walk with God, seeking him, understanding our sin, understanding we are by sinners and it is only by the grace of God that we can be forgiven of our sins and have life in Christ. It's only by his grace. Apart from him, we are nothing. We are unclean. It's only by his grace and his love and his mercy. Do we forget that? God disciplines those who are disobedient, yet he does so in love. He does so in love. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 beginning in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us so that we will hate him. What does it say? But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are to be conformed into the image of Christ. We are not to continue in sin. Christ died so that we could be set free from sin. If you are in Christ, sin no longer has a hold on you. You have been set free because of Easter Sunday, which we celebrate in a couple of weeks. Because Christ has risen from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death. He's broken the chain, broken the bond of sin on our lives. We are to no longer remain in sin. But we are to be conformed into his image. We are to pursue holiness. And as Hebrews 12, 14 says, that without this holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
God cares about our sanctification. God cares about our holiness. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are to represent him well. And if we have unrepentant sin in our life, we cannot do that. The Lord disciplines those he loves. It's painful for the moment. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is to be done out of love. Do you think Paul was celebrating that these two men were kicked out of the church? You think Paul was just writing to Timothy with a smirk on these? Hey, look at these guys. They're no longer in the church. No. I can imagine as Paul was recalling this and writing this letter to Timothy, he was filled with just grief and sorrow that people in the church were living lives. They knew of God. They had heard of God. They knew His gospel, yet they refused to obey it. They refused to repent of their sins. Discipline had to be exercised so that these men would hopefully, outside of the fellowship of God, God could work in them and they would see their sin and they would repent of their sin and turn to Christ and seek forgiveness. 2 Peter 3.9 We see that the Lord desires no one to perish but for all to reach repentance. Repentance so that we can know Him We can walk in fellowship with Him. We can know His love. We can love others rightly with a holy kind of love. If we don't confront sin in others' lives, be careful. I'm not saying go call out people's sins without looking at your own life. We see that in in Scriptures. Why do you point out the speck in in a brother's eye when you have not acknowledged the log in your own? We must not evaluate our lives based on those around us. We must compare our lives to Scripture, to God. What does God say I am to do? Our holiness is His standard. I was telling the youth Wednesday night, a lot of times we come to church and we're bored out of our mind, wondering why do I have to be here again? It's because we look at others around us and we think, I'm better than them. We don't say it out loud because we would never say it but we think it in our hearts and our minds. We compare our holiness to other people, and we don't see ourselves as being as bad as someone else. And therefore, we come here wondering, why do we have to continue to worship? Why do we have to repent? Why do we have to pray? Why do we have to do all these things? And we fail to understand the holiness of God. We fail to understand the seriousness of sin in our lives. We must understand what Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in chapter 6, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. We must not remain in sin. We must not allow others to remain in sin. We must lovingly go to others, help them to see their sin, and beg and plead for them to turn back to God. And this all is a result. Why, Why do we have sin in our lives? Because we reject the things of God. Why do we reject the things of God? Because we don't know God's word. Why don't we know God's word? Because we have become so okay with weak teaching. We've become so okay with sound doctrine not being a part of our daily lives. We don't know God as we should. And I fear 
that many of us, many people, don't really care. What a horrible thing for us who claim to be Christians to say to ourselves and to live our lives showing that we don't care who God is, what He's done, or what He's commanded us to do. What a shameful thing. I don't think any of us could come to a text like this. It's a strange text. It's an interesting text. I don't think any of us could come and not respond in repentance to God. We all have sin in our life. We all fall short of God's glory. Everyone in this room would say, I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be in my relationship with God. Every one of us would say that. We all acknowledge it. Good. Stop using it as an excuse. We know we're not where we're supposed to be. But are you living a life pursuing holiness? Are you living a life seeking the things of God? Studying scripture? Not resting until you know what God has said. And then are you applying it to your lives? Are you seeking the love and the grace and the mercy of God that we so much that we talk about so much? Are you seeking that with a broken heart saying, God, I am, I am undone as Isaiah encountered the holiness of God and recognized his sin? When is the last time we have done that? When is the last time you have done that? We must understand our brokenness. And we must humbly, humbly, but boldly come to the throne of grace. Understanding that God, on the cross, when he died, tore the veil so that we can have direct access to him. We can have fellowship with God. You can go to the Father and seek repentance and forgiveness and love and mercy and grace. I know there are times in my life where I'm lazy in my study. Where I pick up the word of God and I read it because, why not? I read it because, hey, I'm employed here. I read it because, well, I know I need to. And I'm lazy in my study. I close my Bible and I don't think about the things of God. There are times in my life where I am lazy and the result of that is my life is affected by it. If I don't fill myself with the word of God, if I don't study diligently the scriptures, then I'm setting myself up to live a life that is not pleasing to God. I fail to lead my wife as I should. I fail to make sure I'm teaching her the scriptures day in and day out, showing her how to live them, modeling before them. And I know for me personally, I don't want that to carry over when I have a child. Parents, teach your children the scriptures. Teach your wife the scriptures. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your Sunday school teachers that they would teach you the scriptures because by them we know God. When we know the scriptures, we know how we're to love one another. When we know the scriptures, we know, we know how we're to walk in fellowship with one another, in fellowship with God. When we know the scriptures... When we know the scriptures, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added to you. Seek God and his kingdom first. Can I ask you to do something today? I'm going to anyway. Would you repent? Every one of us needs repentance. Would you repent? Would you seek the face of the Lord? Would you turn away from yourself? Would you, would you seek the mind of Christ? Would you seek God and just say, God, I don't understand this. I don't know this, but please teach me. 
God, I, I struggle to read your word. Please help me. God, I struggle to be disciplined in my study. I struggle to be disciplined in, in being faithful to obey your commands. Would you please teach me? God teaches us. That's why we have his word. To teach us. Sunday school teachers. Sunday school teachers. Would you pray that God would protect your study? As you, as you open up the scriptures tomorrow to see what the text is for next week, as you, as you look at the scripture, would you pray that God would protect your mind from anything that is false? Would you not rely on anything but the word of God primarily? The Sunday school books are good. Commentaries are good. Nothing, nothing is better than the word of God. Would you protect, would you ask that God would protect your study? And then would you ask that God protect you from teaching anything that is false? Those of you who are in a Sunday school class, this week, would you pray for your Sunday school teacher? Would you pray that as your Sunday school teacher is preparing and teaching, that God would protect him or her to teach the things that are true and to reject all things that are false? Parents, dads, parents, would you commit, would you commit to teaching your family the scriptures? It's okay to be involved in sports. It's okay to go hunting, to go fishing, to watch TV, to do things. But if any of these things come above your relationship with God, they are idols. They are idols. If you are too busy to study the scripture on your own and with your family, then you need to let something go in your life. I remember when I was in high school, I joined the traveling soccer team. And our tournaments were on Saturdays and Sundays. And I, I committed that I was going to be there Saturday, but I told him I couldn't be there Sundays. He understood. He, didn't, he was fine with that. But I ended up quitting the team. This isn't, to, this isn't a pat on the back. This is to help you see something I loved, soccer. I loved soccer. I still love soccer. I gave it up because I was not going to sacrifice my relationship with God. And my parents weren't allowed Parents, don't fill your lives, don't fill your kids' lives with so many things that you don't have time to study the scriptures together. It's okay to do things. But if you are, not, if you are neglecting the word of God in your home, we will see the effects in the church. Because guess what? The church is made up of families. The church is made up of people. We must not neglect the scriptures. Would you commit to studying the scriptures more diligently? Would you commit whatever time you can? Make the time to teach your family the word of God. You say, I don't know how God's word teaches you. Study, find out. And I'll ask Miss Anita if she would come and play. And this is for all of us. For all of us. Would you repent of not seeking God as you should? All of us, I mentioned that earlier, all of us know that we don't. Would you repent of that? Would you make a commitment to seek the word of God? To study the scriptures more diligently? Would you, would you seek to have discipline in your life? Go find a brother or a sister more godly than you, more wise than you, and say, hold me accountable. 
Make sure my life is holy unto God. Help me. I struggle on my own. Would you do that? Would you make a commitment to God? Do not forget the church is the bride of Christ. And we are to be holy unto God. Father, we all fail. We all fall short. We all have sinned. Let us not remain.